You know it's allergy season when the song leader takes his cup of water down and the minister brings his up. I'm preaching today from a, uh, a place of weakness. I'm not good at what I'm going to be challenging all of us, myself included, to be doing today. Uh, so I just want to get that out there um, to, to kind of let you know. I, last night I was talking to Leah, and I told her, I said, man, it's been a really good week for me and talking to strangers. I've been friendly to like two of them. <laughs> like, and I wasn't joking. This was, and, and she was like, really? Tell me about it. And I did. I told her all about it, and we were both really proud of me. Okay? Um, that's just kind of my reality. And Evan kind of indicated that, you know, in his communion talk that he's a little bit that way too. That, you know, for me, I look at someone that's sitting across the room from me. And, you know, in the Bible, it was always, they would meet around wells. Uh, as wells is where people would go to meet, and you would all of a sudden find yourself listening and talking to strangers and interacting with them. Uh, my two wells this week that I was at that are places in our world where you can end up talking to people that are from all walks of life. Uh, one of them was at Vintage Coffee Shop. Uh, you walk into Vintage and, and the tables are close and it's this real warm atmosphere, uh, Allen and Carey's shop. And I end up talking to, to other people and several people. Um, and I just, I, I felt the need to visit with several people while I was there. Uh, and did that and enjoyed it and was blessed by it. Uh, and then the other place where you go and you find yourself surrounded by all kinds of people is the Apple store. Uh, I had to get my phone worked on. Uh, and if you've been there, you have to sit there and watch that loading screen go over and over and over again at a little table with strangers that are all experiencing this same wonderful, miserable loading screen. And so we did it together. We enjoyed ourselves. Uh, towards the end of the time that was there, this kind of older gentleman that was sitting next to me, and guys, this is how good I did at the Apple store. Uh, his technician said, I need to take you to this other table. And he says, oh no, I'm going to have to make new friends. <laughs> right? Yeah. Today we're finishing our series on Luke and Acts. For six weeks we've been reading through and preaching through and talking about Luke and Acts in these, this two-volume series uh, that Luke has written uh, to Theophilus, and he's told him the story of Jesus and, and the gospel story and the gospel of Luke, and now we're moving into the book of Acts, which talks about the Holy Spirit breaking into this, this early Christian community, this group of believers that in the book of Acts is often referred to as the way, the way. It's still functioning in many ways uh, within Judaism, but it's also kind of becoming separate from Judaism because the Jews don't like it. And they're persecuting it. But at the same time, everywhere Paul goes, he goes first and preaches in the synagogue to the Jews and then to the Gentiles who believe in Yahweh and then to anyone else who will listen. Paul does not let any opportunity pass to talk about the gospel. And in fact, the early apostles, this was one of their trademarks, is that everywhere they went, they were looking for any opportunity and anyone that would listen to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ to make much of the resurrection of Jesus. They'd never let an opportunity pass. And so here we are in the book of Acts, where uh, in the 28 chapters of Acts, so much has changed. 
Uh, when you start out, there's about 120 believers, and they're meeting in the upper room, and they're afraid, and they're huddled, and they're not sure what to do. They've been told to wait for the Spirit that's going to come, and they don't know when it's going to show up or what it's going to mean or how it's going to appear. And there's just this small group. And they've seen the resurrected Jesus, and they've watched Him ascend, and, and now they're waiting. And, and as we move through the book of Acts, we've gone from this 120 to Thousands upon thousands of Christians in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, which for them really meant Rome. Rome is the final destination for Christianity. It's the place where the gospel has to go to be told to the seat of power, to Caesar himself and all of those who are part of the Roman Empire. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that this huddled group of 120 hiding in a room in Jerusalem have what it's going to take? to get the gospel to all of these thousands and thousands in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to even be able to proclaim it to Caesar himself and his household. It seems impossible. And they do it in several ways, and the most important among them is that anytime anyone will listen, they tell them about Jesus Christ. They seize every opportunity. And one of the major events that happens that makes this blow up is a guy named Saul who was previously persecuting any Christian that he could persecute. He was there when Stephen was stoned, holding the coats and giving his assent to what was happening. He, he was there when he was trying to put them in prison and when he was getting letters from the Jewish leaders to go and do this in other places where he encountered on the Damascus Road the resurrected Son of God. And it changed him changed him. It changed everything about him and his life. From then on, instead of persecuting Christians, he became one of the most persecuted Christians. And a missionary who everywhere he went sought every opportunity to tell anybody about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Saul, now known as Paul, will travel over 10,000 miles in the pages of Acts. 10,000 miles preaching and teaching everywhere he goes letting the Spirit guide him from one town to the next, letting the church protect him and partner with him, letting them provide for him as he also provides for himself, doing whatever is necessary. Along the way, in these pages of Acts, Paul writes uh, 13 uh, letters that become books in the New Testament. So much is happening in these pages. But we're not quite at the end of the book yet. This morning in the sermon, I want us to pick up about Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, uh, this is the point in the book of Acts where Paul is setting his journeys as he's been traveling all around uh, Greece and he's been traveling around uh, parts of Asia Minor and anywhere that he can go and find people to listen. Uh, he's now set his sights on returning to Jerusalem. He's going back. It's not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. He's been a couple of times, but this time when he returns, he's been taking up a collection from the Gentile churches. And he's been telling them there's a great famine and drought that's happening uh, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and our Jewish brothers and sisters are suffering under this, this difficult time. And so now you have Gentile Christian churches that are taking up a collection and giving it to Paul, and he's taking it to Jerusalem to help out the Jewish brothers and sisters who in many ways are struggling to accept that they're Christians, which is pretty powerful to see how the church is growing in its ability to include people from all walks of life. And Paul has set himself resolutely 
going to Jerusalem. There's a fun thing that happens in the book of Acts that, that you may have noticed and not noticed if you've been reading it lately. But where Luke, all through his letters, has been talking about they. They are going here. They are going there. They did this. They did that. All of a sudden, he starts saying, we. Luke is now inserted himself uh, as a character in the story because Luke is now with Paul on a ship traveling around as he's going through some of these, these journeys. And he's going to be with Paul for a while, and then it goes back to they because he stays at Troas, and he gets picked up there again later. Uh, but I love that Luke is traveling with Paul through part of this. Uh, Luke is doing something that most of the other writers, uh, the gospel writers, certainly don't do. The other gospel writers are witnesses to Jesus Christ and all that he did. Luke is a researcher. He's a historian. He's interviewing anyone that he can that, can that can tell him who Jesus is, the difference that he made, what the gospel message is, and he's compiling it all. He's more of a journalist than a witness. Now Luke enters the story, and the stories seem to shift because now he's not writing other people's stories. At times he's writing things he saw himself for the very first time. He's part of what's going, going on. And he's listening to Paul and saying, Paul, tell me everything that you've experienced, all that you've seen. Fill in the gaps. And Paul's giving him more of the story. And that brings us to this opportunity that as Paul's traveling to Jerusalem, he's meeting with the, the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he's meeting with them in Acts chapter 20. And they gather together and they have this incredibly intimate farewell. And I want to pick up in verse 22, which says this, uh, he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul has incredible conviction. And in the series of stories that we're going to be looking at today, uh, he's going to make a number of really tough choices. And I'm going to confess to you that almost every time that Paul is given a choice in these stories, when I think, if I were in Paul's shoes, what would I do? My absolute first tendency is to do the opposite of what Paul does. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was reminded of when I was a kid, uh, they came out with these books. They were Choose Your Own Adventure books. Do you guys remember these? Anyone ever read a Choose Your Own Adventure book? Um, so the way a Choose Your Own Adventure book works is you open the book up and the first three or four pages set up the story. And about page three or four, it says, now if you choose to take the ship to New York, turn to page seven. However, if you choose to take the train to New Mexico, Turn to page 9. Well, then you turn to whichever one you choose, and the story shifts into a new tree, and it goes in a new direction. And then if you go to New Mexico, once you're there, the story moves, and it progresses, and you're given another choice. So that by the time you've read the book, if you make all the choices, you will have gone through 13 different variations of what could happen in all of these stories. And I want to kind of use that as a way of thinking about what Paul is experiencing in every one of these junctions. Paul says, the Holy Spirit warns me that as I go into every city, that, that what awaits me is violence and prison and persecution. 
And I can only imagine that if, he was, if this is a choose-your-own-adventure story, that what it would say is, if you choose to go to another city and proclaim Jesus Christ and get imprisoned and persecuted, turn to page 7. If you would rather go hang out in the countryside and not talk about Jesus, turn to page 8. Wouldn't that be easier? But Paul is not going to let anything get in the way of him proclaiming the gospel. He is going to seize every opportunity. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking to the Ephesian elders, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed and they wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They're heartbroken because Paul is choosing the path of proclaiming the gospel of Christ no matter what it means to them. And he's told them, I will never see you again because of what's going to start happening when I get to Jerusalem. He knows that this is the tougher path, but it will not keep him from making the right choice. But to make sure that he understands the choice, when he gets to page 7 of the choose his own adventure choice, Here's what it says. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Be sure and stop and actually picture what's happening here. A prophet named Agabus comes up to Paul, takes his belt, tied his own hands and his feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, Luke included, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Have you, does this sound familiar, by the way? That one who is a prophet of God says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested by the Jewish authorities, they will bind me together and hand me over to the Gentiles. And those who are following him said, no, please don't go, please don't do this thing, because it was at the end, about this point in Luke's gospel, that it's Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem no matter what they will do. I know that I'm not coming back this way again because I am certain that I'm going to be arrested, handed over, and die at the hands of Gentiles because of the arrest of the Jews. Paul says, you guys have heard this before, but I am unwilling, I am unwilling to turn down any opportunity to go where God sends me and proclaim the gospel. You cannot stop me from doing this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go, not if it just means being bound hand and foot. I'm going to go if it means that I will die in the name of Jesus. He was willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. You can't stop me. Jesus, when he became resolute towards this, says, God, your will, not mine. Those who are with Paul says, the Lord's will be done. Paul is willing to give as much as Jesus gave for him so that someone else might know what Jesus did for them. He's got choices. 
And as Agabus binds his hands and the church is, is pleading with him, those who are there with him, please don't go. I'll tell you, if I'm with Paul, I would say, you guys are probably right. There's other mission fields that don't have people that want to bind me and turn me over to the Gentiles. There's other mission fields. Uh, maybe I'll go now to, to Spain or maybe I'll go to Italy. I, I, there's other places. But where the Spirit leads, Paul always follows. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, and for the sake of time, we've got to kind of skim over some of these stories, but these stories are rich. If you didn't read them this week, go back and read the last several chapters of Acts. Uh, as Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the church leaders come to him and they say, Paul, listen, there's some rumors going around that you're anti-Jewish, anti-Torah, anti-temple. Uh, and we know that you are, in fact, completely a follower of the law and that you believe that God has called Israel to this special thing and that, that the temple matters for Israel. We know that you think all these things. And so listen, so that you can put to rest any rumors that you're anti-Jewish, can you please take this vow? It's a seven-day vow. There's some costs associated with it and some things you have to do. Take the vow, shave your head, fulfill the vow, take several others, pay for their vows so that they can do this with you, and let it be known that you are a supporter of not just the Gentile, but also the Jew. All who are in Christ are part of this kingdom. And Paul says, I've got no problem with that. He takes the vow. He spends seven days doing this. But while he's doing it, he spends time with Trophimus, one of his friends from Ephesus, a Greek. And he's spending time with him about the seventh day. And several people say, was Paul with Trophimus earlier today? But yeah, he was with Trophimus. The Greek? Yes. And was Paul at the temple today? I saw him at the temple. And they start spreading rumors that Paul had taken Trophimus, a Greek, inside the part of the temple that we talked about last week. The part of the temple that Gentiles were not supposed to go into. The part that had a wall... It was about this tall, and it had gates, and at every one of the gates, there's a sign on it that says, Gentiles that pass this point will certainly die, and when you do, it's your fault, not ours. We warned you. That's the sign at the door. And they start spreading rumors that Paul has violated the sign at the door and taken Trophimus, an Ephesian, into the part of the temple where no Ephesian is supposed to go. And the rumors start spreading, and a riot breaks out. And violence ensues, and people are, hear something going on at the temple, and they start swarming from all over the city to go see what's going on. And immediately, a Roman commander who is there, Lysias, who's there, says, if there's this many angry, passionate Jews headed to the temple to start a riot, I've got to get down there and stop whatever's going on. So the Roman commander rushes in. The whole city's collapsing on the temple. Riot is breaking out. He gets there and he sees Paul being beaten and he grabs Paul and he rescues him and he gets him out and he takes him out of the mob. Choose your own adventure, right? If I'm Paul in this moment, what I do is I say, thank you, get me out of here. They're about to kill me. They're pulling Paul out and Paul says to the commander, hey, hold on a minute. Hold just, just a minute. And the guy says, whoa, you sound like a Greek. You're speaking Greek. He says, yes, I know Greek. And he, he, he sounds educated and he sounds like he's in control. And the Roman had assumed that he was a, a Jewish, Aramaic-speaking resurrectionist or, or uh, 
Someone who was trying to start an insurrection. Not a resurrection. I guess he was a resurrectionist. He believed in the resurrection. Uh, thought he was starting to start a rebellion. And when he realizes that he speaks Greek, he says, well, yeah, if you want to speak to him, if you think you have something you can say to calm them down. Paul says, yeah, let me try something. And he turns around and he starts speaking now to the crowd in Aramaic, speaking to everyone in their own language so that they would relate to him in a way that Paul has this incredible ability to do. And he starts the sermon in a way that the crowd's silent and they're listening. And he starts telling them his story. He says, listen, I used to be a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was one of the ones who persecuted Christians. I get why you're angry. I was too. And then let me tell you what happened. I saw Jesus of Nazareth, the one that, that those who are of the way say was resurrected. I saw him on the road in a vision. He appeared to me. And, and what I learned about him is that this Jesus, if you believe in him, that he can wash your sins away. And the crowd's still listening. They're not mad about him saying something about Jesus. They're not mad about him saying something about sins being washed away. And he says, and then God said to me, then God said to me that I needed to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And they said, we knew it. He's trying to bring Gentiles to God. And that's what enrages them. And the riot is, is off again. Because here's what happens is we've got a problem. Because as we talked about last week, God is in the Holy of Holies. And then there's the priest and the Jewish men and the Jewish women. And then only over here on this side of the wall can Gentiles come. That's how close they can get to God. The problem is the church is proclaiming that the Spirit of God can dwell in all people. Gentiles and eunuchs and people from all kinds of regions of the world, men and women alike. God's going to live in them. But when you go to the temple, there's still a sign on the wall. And what do you do about the fact that God's presence is in these people, but they're not allowed to go into God's presence? You throw a riot. Roman commander does everything he can, and he gets Paul out of there, and he grabs him, and he pulls him into the barracks and keeps him safe. He says, what are you doing? Why is Paul making all of these insane choices to let himself be beaten and abused and have all of these things happen? And the reason he's doing it is that he will seize any opportunity to tell anybody he can about Jesus Christ and him resurrected. He refuses to stop. A bunch of guys, 40 Jews take a vow. 40 Jews take a vow to neither eat nor drink until Paul is dead. You better be pretty sure you can back that vow up before you take that. They've got a plan that when Paul comes to the Sanhedrin the next day to be on trial, that they're going to ambush a Roman contingency of guards, defeat them, take Paul, kill him, fulfill their vow, and then they can start eating and drinking again, ignoring the fact that Rome does not react well to Jewish ambushes of Roman contingencies of guards. They think it's worth it to kill this guy. While they're making this whole plan, Paul's nephew is standing off on the side listening to it. Paul's nephew goes and tells Paul, Paul, here's what's going on. Paul says, hey, can you do me a favor and tell that to this Roman guy that's protecting me? He tells it to the Roman guy that's protecting him, and they come up with a plan in the middle of the night. If you think the Bible's boring, what are you reading? <laughs> they come up with a plan in the middle of the night. The Roman centurion gets together two other Roman centurions. He gets together 200 soldiers. He gets 70 horsemen. He gets 200 spearmen. 
and he gets them together. It's 447, was that right? 472 Romans. It's nine o'clock at night, and he says, you got to get out of here before this Jewish ambush gets set for Paul. And they take off for Caesarea, where Paul's going to go stand trial. And they get there, and they go as fast as they can and as far as they can until they decide they're a safe distance away. And all of those on foot come back, but the 70 on horse continue to make the 60-mile trip to Caesarea, where he's going to now stand trial. And there's now three trials that Paul's going to go under. The first one is, under, is with the governor, Felix. The governor, Felix, calls Paul in, and he starts defending himself against the charges. The high priest and, and an attorney show up to accuse Paul. And Paul defends himself. He says, listen, they say I'm part of a sect. Yeah, I am. I, they call it a sect. I call it the way. I am a follower of the way. I follow a man named Jesus of Nazareth. I believe in the law and the prophets, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I believe this Jesus was resurrected. That makes them mad. I, I guess it makes them mad. But Felix, I'm going to tell you, I believe in all of these things. And Felix, when he hears that he's a member of the way, dismisses the charges and sends the Sanhedrin and the high priest home. Because what started out as 120 people huddled in a quiet room in Jerusalem is now a movement that has reached the ears of the governor, Felix, who knows about the way and who is not interested in the arguments about them. And so he dismisses them and he listens to Paul. Felix's wife is, is Drusilla. She's a, Drew, a Jew herself. And so he knows these stories and he knows the arguments and he thinks highly enough of the Christians that are part of the way that he dismisses the charges, sends them home. He starts talking to Paul over and over again. He goes and visits him often. And don't you know that Paul just keeps preaching to him and teaching to him? Felix really wants a bribe. He heard that Paul was getting a collection and that he was raising it to go and support people in Jerusalem. And he thinks, if you've been collecting money, I would like some of that. And he keeps waiting for Paul to bribe him and get out. But, bribe has, but Paul has a choice. He can bribe him and get out of jail, or he can stay in jail and keep preaching and teaching. And he stays in jail and he keeps preaching and teaching to anyone who will listen. Felix has a bad habit of getting bribes, and he's not good at governing. So he gets called back to Rome. A new governor, Festus, comes and sits in place. And he goes to Jerusalem. And the first thing, after a couple of years of Paul being in jail, when Festus gets to Jerusalem... He says, how, how can I serve you guys here in Jerusalem? And the Jews say, here's the first thing we want. Hey, can you bring Paul down here so we can kill him? Festus says, well, I've got to give him a trial first. So if you want to come up to Caesarea, we'll put him on trial. Paul gets up there. He's on trial. We're now in trial part two between the governor of Judea. And when Paul gets there, all he thinks is, yes. Another opportunity to preach Jesus to a group of people who are willing to listen. There's another ambush waiting for Paul if he goes down to Jerusalem. So when Paul's about at the end of the trial and it's clear that he's done nothing wrong, he says, I appeal to Caesar, send me to Rome. Because Paul realizes that while he was willing to die in Jerusalem for Jesus Christ... That God in the Spirit has told Paul, what you have done now in Jerusalem and Caesarea, I want you to do in Rome to Caesar. You're going to preach to the one who calls himself King of Kings that Jesus is the King of Kings. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. 
Festus, who just wants to get out of the mess, says, that sounds great. Case closed. He's got a new problem now. You can't send a prisoner to Rome on the charges of, I don't know. Um, or on charges of, he stands convicted of not guilty. Um, so Festus has a problem. Uh, King Agrippa is coming to see Festus and to congratulate him on his new appointment as governor. And when King Agrippa shows up, uh, they start talking and visiting, and they're there for a long time. And Festus keeps talking about this man, Paul, who keeps talking about this man, Jesus, who all these people keep saying isn't dead anymore. And Festus says, listen, he keeps talking about how Jesus isn't dead, and I don't know how to investigate that. Do you have any advice? And Agrippa says, I would love to hear Paul. Festus says, that's great. You can help me write the letter to Caesar that says why I'm sending him. We'll set it up for tomorrow. And now Paul has an opportunity to give witness and give his defense in front of King Agrippa. But Agrippa doesn't want to meet in the courtroom because Paul's not on trial anymore. So it says that, that Agrippa is now going to be meeting with Paul in the audience room. And it's not just Agrippa. He invites all of the people in. It says that he comes in with great pomp. He brings in his guard, the Praetorian Guard. He brings his, his soldiers, all of those of the highest military rank, and all the important people of the city. Here you are in the city of Caesarea, named after one who claims that he's a god. Paul has an audience with everyone that matters, and he is going to put on a show for them. And here's what the show is. Jesus Christ has been resurrected. And if you believe in him, you can be saved. Here's a little bit of how that hearing goes. And it's not a hearing, it's an audience. In Acts chapter 26, verse 25, as after Paul has done much of what he does in all of these trials, he shares his past, he shares his conversion, he shares his ministry, he shares his beliefs. And here we are in Acts chapter 26, Starting in verse 25, back in verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Oh, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Seize every opportunity. Paul will not miss any opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a preacher in Dallas, a guy named Matt Chandler, uh, who has a story and it, I think Matt's story sounds a lot more like what a lot of us do. Paul seizes every opportunity to speak to any audience, great, small, weak, powerful, to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matt tells a story about one time he was getting ready to meet his parents for breakfast. He was a young preacher, 
Uh, he was a Bible degree, uh, a graduate from a Bible school. He was sitting there. Matt and I have one distinct difference. I'm introverted. If no one's talking to me at my table, I'm in my sanctuary. Matt is a, a rabid extrovert. So he, in this story, he talks about how uh, as he got to this moment where his parents were running late, he'd been 45 minutes and he hadn't talked to anyone, so he was starting to kind of get the shakes. <laughs> so he looks over a couple tables away and there's a, a young man who's bussing a table. And he says to him, he says, hey, how are you doing? How are you, how are you doing? And the guy says, I've got nothing left but my soul and nobody wants that. Matt says in this moment, he says, I don't know what I was thinking. He says, but I look over at the guy and I took a drink of my coffee and I said, I hear you, bro. I went right back to what I was doing. He says, later that day, as I looked back on that moment, it hit me that this guy could not have been more clearly saying to me, nobody cares about me, please tell me about Jesus. That would have been less obvious than what this young man said to this young preacher. But for some reason, Matt did what so many of us do every day. We miss the moment. We miss the opportunity. We come up with some excuse for me to not want to say something or some excuse for them to not want to hear something. And we shut our mouths and we look only down our own nose at what's going on in my world. And we miss it. Paul never missed an opportunity. Under threat of chains, abuse, persecution, imprisonment, death, none of it. None of it would deter Paul from seizing a single opportunity to make much of Jesus and the resurrection to anyone who would listen and to people who wouldn't too. We have to, as Christians today, reclaim this goal, this ambition, this drive to seize every opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And what we'll see again is the church will have explosive growth from about 220 in this room to how many hundreds of thousands? Are we willing to be instruments of the kingdom? Are you willing to seize every opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And I'm going to take one of those right now. If you are here today and you have not made a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to believe in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and that because of him, that if you're baptized into him as a believer, that you can be saved and join in with those who go about seizing opportunities to help the kingdom of God break into this world, why don't you do it today? Do it today while we stand and sing. Here's a spin in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary.